we have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We are currently the only ones offering actual carbon removal. In 30 years down the road, this market will be as big as oil and gas is today. What we're really doing is looking for the companies that are creating entirely new industries, and Climax very much fits into that category. To our kids and grandkids, the image of an air capture plant will be as normal as today a wind farm or a solar farm is to us. The hope is that this becomes one of humanity's big tools in its overall toolkit of how to deal with climate change. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Invest in Progress, brought to you by Scottish Mortgage. I'm Claire Shaw, an investment specialist in the team. In this podcast, we take you behind the scenes to hear the conversations that take place between the Scottish mortgage managers and the leaders of some of the world's most exceptional growth companies. As we are a UK investment trust, we can only market Scottish mortgage to certain audiences and in certain jurisdictions. Check out the podcast description to ensure this content is suitable for you. And as with any investment, your capital is at risk. Despite our best efforts, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is still on the rise. Worse is accelerating. So if we're going to tackle climate change, reducing the amount of CO2 produced is not enough. We need to reverse the damage already done. And Climeworks is on a mission to do just that, by removing carbon dioxide from the air and storing it deep underground. It's a nascent technology and the company itself is still relatively early on in its journey. But if it succeeds, its impact could be hugely meaningful from a climate perspective. Today, we welcome co-founder and CEO Christoph Gebel to tell us more. But first, I'm here with Scottish mortgage manager, Lawrence Burns. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. So, Lawrence, this is the first company that we've welcomed onto the podcast that I would say firmly sits within that environmental bucket. And in the industry, we see so much hype around this concept of ESG, you know, environmental, social and governance. But we're not an ESG fund and we definitely don't claim to be. And so this is not a company we invest in to tick a box. So why do we invest in this company? Well, I think the reason is that we're looking for companies that solve big real world problems. And Climeworks very much fits into that in terms of we have a climate crisis um, what are the different ways that we can address that? And we've already, within Scottish Mortgage, addressed in a few different ones. And you know, it's, it's ironic, given the starting point there, that obviously we invest in Tesla. Their original mission was um, to shift us away from the hydrocarbon economy. Um, and in doing so, they've created one of the most valuable companies in the world. So the idea that you can't make money by um, finding environmental solutions um, doesn't hold in any way. And what Climeworks are trying to do is have a solution for how do we deal with the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there'll be different ways um, from customers, from companies, from governments, that by solving that problem, they're going to be remunerated as they are today. And they have some of the world's biggest customers that are paying them for that service. And so what we're really doing is looking for who are the companies that are creating entirely new industries. And Climeworks very much fits into that category. And Lawrence, this is a private company, meaning that it's not listed on on the stock market. And I would say it's probably at an earlier stage than the average private company that we invest in, but it's also a relatively small holding for us. So how does a company of this size and at this stage of its journey fit into the Scottish mortgage portfolio? Yeah, so so that's absolutely right. Um, Both in holding size, so we have about 0.35% of the portfolio invested in Climeworks. It's it's at the much, much smaller end of everything that we do. And both in terms of how early this investment is and this company is, it's at the much earlier end. We don't do many of them, but we do a few. 
what are the ingredients that make us want to do something like this? One is that if you're taking a very, very small holding, the opportunity set has to be really large so that even if you're taking a small holding, it can make a big difference potentially for clients. And Climeworks, again, is facing that huge opportunity of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so that ticks that box. The second element is that you're wanting to be able to find something where you can learn quite a lot from them. And I think as they're on that journey of creating the new industry, there's an awful lot that we can learn as an investment. So we're very open that there's a wide range of outcomes with some of these earlier stage investments, but we have them as very small parts of the portfolio. And if they work, we'll happily devote more capital to them and grow them and own them for the next 10 years. Super. Thanks, Lawrence. Well, my, um, from my side, I'm looking forward to this one. I think um, it's a technology that people probably won't have heard of, so I think we'll all learn a lot. So I'll hand over now to you and Christoph. Great. Christoph, um, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate your time and uh, really looking forward to get to know even more about Climeworks. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Perhaps just starting off then, what does Climeworks do and what problem are you trying to solve with the company? Climeworks captures carbon dioxide from the atmosphere with technology. And why we do that is climate change. Like in order to achieve climate targets, we have to do two things. One is reduce emissions massively. And the second thing is we have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And this latter piece is exactly what, what Climeworks is focusing on. And when did the interest in climate change begin? Tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you found yourself on this uh, mission. Well, personally, I'm, I'm born in 1983, so I turned 40 this year. Um, my, my first exchange or my, my first data points with climate change were in the mid 90s. This was when I was in like the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade of high school. Um, we, we were tasked to, like do some student work on on topics that we were interested, and I I did some investigations on energy technology, like how energy is supplied to humanity, um, like what different forms of energy are, what the consequences are, and there was always the topic of of CO two emissions. So that was my very first encounter with with the topic of energy, CO two, and consequences uh, we we have to bear with it in 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 the atmosphere and and the climate system. And then it, it continued, like um, completing high school. Um, it was clear to me I, I wanted to study engineering um, to continue the journey on energy science, energy technology, and eventually finding out means how, how to counteract climate change. And what was it, uh, I think, back in 2009 with your co-founder that, that led you to both um, direct air capture, but also to found Climeworks as part of that journey? The journey actually started in 2003. That's 20 years ago. Both Jan and I, we, we started jointly as, as students in mechanical engineering at, at the same university. It's ETH Zurich in, in Switzerland. And both being raised, born and raised in, in Germany um, and studying in Switzerland, uh, it, the Swiss have a secret language. Uh, they have Swiss German and we talk like high German, so we couldn't understand them essentially. And as a consequence of that, there was some early days, strong bonding between Jan and I, uh, both coming from, from the same country. And we exchanged wh why we're doing that, uh, what, what our mission is. And somehow it turned out both Jan and I had the same dream of one day having our own company. And we high-fived on that, essentially, on the first day we met. And six years later, that was in 2009, when we graduated, we 
started a company right after handing in our thesis. And the years before, starting in 2007, we, we started to scout uh, very proactively for topics that have the potential to, to be commercially deployed. And we came across a topic which we found super interesting, and that was direct air capture. There was a, a ongoing research project at, at the university on developing technologies to capture CO2 from the air, and we applied and with some luck were, were approved to the program and, and then researched and optimized the, the technology that has been used and were so fascinated by, by the results we had that we, we thought, well, there is no way but to, to start a company, which, which we then did in 2009. I I think that's fascinating. It would be really helpful, I suspect, for our audience to understand a little bit about how carbon capture works, um, the processes and the steps within it, because I think to many people listening, it would be a um, an exciting and inspirational technology, but also one that they're not familiar with. So if you could take us through how that works step by step, that would be really interesting. We essentially, at Climeworks, we developed something like a sponge, like a solid material that has an affinity towards CO2, like a chemical affinity. So what we do is we take air as it is, like uh, on cold days, cold, on warm days, warm, uh, dry and humid. And we, we, so we take the air as it is, stream it through our system, which is filled with those uh, filter materials that are like very fluffy and porous, like like a sponge. And the air passes through the sponge and the CO2 selectively sticks on the surface of, of this material. And air without CO2 is leaving our filter system. Now, after a couple of hours, all sides on this filter material are filled up with CO2 molecules. And when that is the case, we stop streaming the air and we heat the system to the boiling point of water, like 100 degrees Celsius. And at this temperature, the filter again releases the CO2 molecules from, from its surface into, into the gas phase, and we can suck it out of our systems as a pure gas. So we essentially developed a device that can concentrate CO2 from 0.04%, as we have it in the atmosphere, to 100% purity, and can take the CO2 that we obtain from the air for further processes. And so the big question is what to do with the CO2. And we are using CO2 subsequently, like after capturing it from the air for permanent underground storage in order to take it out of the cycle and to reduce the CO2 content in the atmosphere contributing to achieving climate targets. That's fascinating. So, so taking carbon dioxide directly out of the air and then storing it underground. And is it, am I right in thinking it's, it's in the form of rock um, is, is the output of that process that you then store? There are essentially two ways you can store CO2 in the ground. You can store it in an underground mineralization process. This is what we are currently doing in Iceland with a company called Carbfix. Mm -hmm. So Climeworks is concentrating the CO2 to a pure gas 100% pure CO2, and we're providing that to carb fix for permanent underground storage. What they do in Iceland is they pump it in porous rock, uh, it's called basalt, and the basalt in turn has, has a, its surface has an affinity to bind CO2 and turn it essentially into stone on its surface. This is one way of, of storing the CO2. This is the way we're currently proceeding. Now there's a second way. You can also store CO2 in, in underground volumes like uh, saline aquifers or depleted oil and gas fields. This is referred to as uh, conventional 
uh, storage of CO2. And in that case, the CO2 will not be mineralized in the ground, but stay there in the form of a gas and it'll be locked away. Now, people might wonder, well, is that safe? Yes, it's it's very safe to do that because like the those volumes have stored natural gas over millions of years and we have to like go look for it and like explore it, drill holes in order to get it out. So we can actually reverse what we did in, in the fossil industry for many decades and take the CO2 back from, from the air and put it in those underground volumes to lock it away. And, and you have these commercial facilities that are up and running now, live in the real world, doing that. Perhaps you could talk us through the, the size of, of those facilities, the one in Iceland, for example, and, and why you chose that as the location. We have one facility up running in Iceland since 2021, so two years now, um, a facil- facility we call Orca. And the, like, how does it look like or how can you imagine such a facility? We, we have eight 40 foot shipping containers as modules capturing the CO2 from the air. And those modules we call CO2 collectors, alluding to the modular uh, nature of our technology. Uh, we're stacking them on top of each other to like a stack uh, contains two of those containers. So imagine with a U-form shape of uh, eight 40 foot shipping containers that are centered around uh, a central building where we have all the computers and pumps, heat exchanges in order to control the plant. That's a rather small footprint uh, for this plant. It's it's maybe something like uh, 30 times 30 meters in, in size. Now, as of speaking, we're currently building a 10x scale facility of that in Iceland, uh, a a facility we call Mammoth. It'll go online uh, in 2024, um, which is like implementing the learnings we had from from the Orca facility and essentially scaling um, our our technology to the next level. And that's a scale-up pace uh, that we're committed to scaling on the order of 10x uh, on a a two-year horizon every two years after two years in order to, to get to larger quantities. 10x every two years, that, that's an impressive rate of change. And presumably these facilities are quite energy consumptive, um, which probably sort of links to sort of um, choosing Iceland, given its amount of renewables. Um, could you talk a bit about the, the energy consumption and how we should think about for a current facility before you 10 exit, what the sort of amount of CO2 it's able to take out of the air is? The amount of CO2 the Orca facility is taking out of the air is a couple of thousand tons per year. Now, that might not tell you a lot what that means. That is the unavoidable mission of roughly 10,000 electric cars, to put that somehow in context. Uh, scaling that 10x uh, will bring us to a facility in the range of 30, 30 to 40,000 tons of CO2 per year, which which will be installed in, in the next year. Now, also there, or the, the big question is, how does that compare or what does that mean on our final journey or on the journey we are on in order to to achieve climate targets which which is what what I alluded to in in, in mm. the beginning now the the total volumes that have to be taken out of the air with a technology like ours are estimated to be 5 to 15 billion tons by 2050 right and those 5 to 15 billion tons will be split between like a technology like ours uh, but also technologies that, that are using other approaches that uh, incorporate uh, also uh, nature-based approaches. Now, the question is, 
how do we get from the platform we have built with Orca and Mammoth, uh, a couple of thousand tons and, and 30 to 40,000 tons to the, the goal Climeworks has is a billion ton carbon removal by, by 2050. The very concrete steps we're taking is we aim at achieving multi-million ton carbon removal by 2030. And the big news is we just got a word notification from the U.S. Department of Energy that we'll be seeing support in the order of 600 million U.S. dollars for building a scaled, yet another 10x scaled facility in the United States in the years to come, which then uh, will be extended to, to 1 million ton carbon capture capacity in the range of 2028, 2029. Now, between 2030 and 2050, so assuming you're a million ton capture capacity in 2030 and a gigaton or a billion ton in 2050, that's a 20-year horizon with a task of increasing your volumes by 1,000 times. And this is exactly the amount of scaling that, for example, the renewable industry, like mm -hmm. both solar and wind, did between the year 2000 and 2020. In 2000, the solar global solar installed capacity was one gigawatt. In 2020, it was a bit more than 1,000 gigawatts, right? With the uh, right policy incentives, with the right supply chains, with OEMs uh, providing the technology. And this is exactly what we are working against. We are working against to have in the year, if you want, in the year 2030, the same platform as solar had in the year 2000 and have the right right policy incentives in, in 2030 in place, the right supply chain in place to scale by 1,000 times over the next 20 year uh, time frame. So that's that's the journey we are on with like the, the, the platform we created with Orca and Mammoth in, in Iceland. Uh, that's fascinating. And, and with those type of numbers, how do you feel and think about what you're doing and how it fits in with the other ways of addressing the climate crisis? So whether that's carbon capture and storage at source, whether that's planting of trees, whether that's renewable energy production, how do you think of this tool fitting in that overall tool set that the humanity has to deal with this crisis? Well, generally to achieve climate targets, we have to reduce CO2 and remove CO2. The numbers behind that are roughly 90% reduction and 10% removal. Now on the, on the reduction side, we have all those means that you just mentioned. Uh, renewable energy like wind or solar, geothermal, instead of using fossil fuels. We have carbon capture, like in case we can't avoid fossil fuels, we're using point source carbon capture and store the CO2 in the ground and remove the CO2. We have energy efficiency measures, et cetera, et cetera, right? This is all under the umbrella of CO2 reduction, which is 90% of the journey ahead of us. Now, the 10% part is the part we are playing in with taking CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it in the ground. In this domain, actually, essentially two things are existing. Take technologies like we have to take CO2 from the air or take nature, which stores CO2 in the form of biomass, like the easiest thing is planting trees or um, um, forestation, reforestation projects. Now, how... How is Climeworks different uh, or, or what is characterizing Climeworks in like this whole portfolio of, of uh, climate mitigation um, strategies and actions? We are currently the only ones offering actual carbon removal. Like we are the only ones currently operating a plant that day after day takes CO2 out of the air and stores in the ground. There are many, many, many parties that are talking about that and talking about that they will do it 
but we, for the moment, are the only ones delivering and actually third party verified. Uh, so it's not us claiming that, but third parties uh, verifying that, uh, that, that we're taking CO2 out of the air and store it in the ground. Again, um, fascinating. And I was also interested to pick up on your analogy with um, solar and other renewables in terms of where you are in that journey. Um, and I suppose with with solar, for example, you've seen uh, cost over the last um, decade or so probably come down about 90%. Um, and if you go back further enough in time, in, in the 60s and the 70s, the only place where solar panels made sense was sort of on satellites. And so you've had a radical cost reduction over the years. Um, how much does it cost uh, today to remove carbon from the atmosphere? And, and how do you think about that cost changing over time? At the moment, we are operating in the very high hundreds of dollars per ton of CO2. So think about eight, nine hundred uh, dollars per ton of CO2 taken out of the air. If you compare that or the, if, if, if you if you hear the unit dollars per ton of CO2, your brain might immediately jump into offsets yeah. uh, like carbon offsets, which you might think about or, or heard about or read about something like five, ten, twenty dollars. You might think that's expensive, but it's not expensive if you compare it to what the alternatives are. There's a very nice study by Goldman Sachs on on the cost of carbon abatement. And when looking at the study, you will see that there's a good 10 to 15 billion tons of um, CO2 emissions that are facing an abatement toss cost beyond $800 per ton. Why so? Because there are not so many things you can do in order to to abate those emissions. So, for example, take aviation. Right, the the if if you travel long haul, the likelihood that in thirty years from now those long haul flights will be powered by hydrocarbons, so like a, a high energy density product like we know it today, is very high. And as a concept, like what can you do? Either we are not. Either we are stopping to see each other in person and uh, just meet uh, via via uh, online setups, or if if we think it's important for humanity that we meet in 3D, which I do believe in, uh, this is the case uh, to to make sure we we live together in in a fruitful manner. Like you need some other approaches in order to get the emissions uh, back out of the air, and one of them is is direct air capture and underground storage and. Uh, the, the alternatives to do that would be way more expensive than than the way we do it with with um, underground uh, direct air capture and and underground storage. So it, there's there's not a silver bullet to approach all of the 50 billion tons that we're currently emitting, and each each of the solutions we discussed before have has their target, and the target we the target we are having we are always the last mile. Like we are addressing. We are addressing emissions that cannot be addressed otherwise and that are facing high cost of carbon abatement. And again, those are like the quantities are five to 15 billion tons. That's the estimate. And I do expect, so you asked about where, where will this, where will this go on, on, uh, on, uh, cost wise? Again, currently in the high hundreds. And I do expect that in the long run, a, a, a price in the range of two to three hundred dollars or like a market that is operating in the range of two to three hundred dollars um, for carbon removal is a very realistic assumption. I suppose I should also sort of mention that um, it's still the case that individuals can sign up as well. Um, 
uh, anyone can sort of sign up and, and 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 pay to have sort of carbon removed as well, which has been um, one of the earlier sources of um, sort of uh, revenue and commerciality for the company. Indeed, we we also have possibilities for for private people. Uh, oftentimes, we approach by by private people saying, "Hey, listen, I I feel responsible. Like I'm wearing this backpack uh, of of CO two. Um, I have built a business, or I." I I, I have created something. I have a family, and now I'm in a position where where I want to give back. And actually, like at the end of the day, like I want to leave this planet in like a net zero or even net negative um, contribution. And all of those people are are finding solutions with us. And we actually have close to twenty thousand people um, right now, which which we are serving with carbon removal and subscription models. Um, so they're, they're they're getting carbon removal over and over, and some very renowned people are using that, like a Bill Gates or the plant a band Coldplay. Like if you go to a Coldplay concert, you might see a a very big Climbworks banner at the end of the concert, uh, showing that net zero touring is enabled by by a solution like ours. And as you mentioned, this the very early market success before actually companies acted was through people. And you mentioned that you were the only people doing this commercially in, in the real world, but it would still be interesting to talk about how you think about the competitive space in the long run. Because on the one hand, more people doing this, given, as you said, it's supply constraint probably isn't isn't the worst thing. But how do you think about the competitive dynamics evolving over time for you? Well, the if if again, if we take the lens of 2050 and we need to remove 5 to 15 billion tons of carbon from the air, this will be like if you multiply that with two or three hundred dollars of of market price, you end up with a trillion dollar market. And essentially, you you in 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 thirty years down the road, this market will be as big as oil and gas is today. And this, some people allude to that as oil and gas in reverse. And if if you look at how the oil and gas industry is set up today, it's like t- ten to twenty very 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 big companies uh, acting in 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 this market. Um, and I do expect that in, in 2050, we'll have the same number. We have some 20 to 20 companies in, in carbon removal that are very, very big, like operating on global scale, uh, having hundreds of billions of, of revenue and are removing CO2. It's impossible that a single company will be able to deal with that. So, of course, we are welcoming and uh, it's good to see also others uh, to to work on that. And actually... There, there are many things we have in common, like, for example, policy, uh, policy, like if, if, if not only us are advocating for, for, uh, uh, like a welcoming carbon removal policy, uh, but also others, uh, this of course helps, helps the whole industry. Um, what's important though, and what's our ambition is to lead the pack. Like we, we have been able to, to lead this industry and, uh, we're committed to continue the leadership in, in, in this domain and leadership defined by, uh, the, the money raised, the people employed, uh, the agreements closed, um, and this is where where Climeworks is in the pole position. And I think when our team first started getting to know you, it was that dedication to mission that came across quite strongly. Um, yeah, for example, sort of the, the refusal to take money um, to build the business from fossil fuel companies, for example, was to us quite an interesting um, marker. It'd be interesting to understand why you took that decision early on. This is the very, very, very fundamental thought of, of Climeworks. That we, we need the energy transition to happen. We need energy reduction. And with all activities we, we, we do, we want to be, 
um, catalytic to, to this deployment, right? Now, um, I said, <laughs> things are becoming less and less uh, religious about what, what you have to do is you also have to face reality. Um, and now imagine if you, if you want to build a plant capturing a million tons of CO2 out of the year, right? As, as, a, as an important milestone to achieving your gigaton target in 2050. And it takes very long to de uh, develop a, a facility supplying the, the renewable energy or you have some permitting issues. And as a consequence of that, you're delaying your roadmap. And on the other hand, you have the chance to use a, another less or say non-renewable source, but also sustainable source, say a fossil energy source with carbon capture to power your facility. Is it the right thing to do or not? Challenging question. Mm. I do think if um, if it helps you to be on, on track in the mid to long term, I think it's still okay to do it, right? Um, it, but it should not be the ultimate solution of what you do. Um, but in, when 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 you start to scale and you want to scale rapidly, you also have to weigh the speed of scaling into into the solution. And at times you have to take compromises on a couple of the very early day religious views um, you, you had when when you set out with a firm. But in the long run, the only thing that makes sense to me is, as as mentioned before, is that you're driving direct air capture with renewable sources and that both are catalytic with each other, else we have no chance to to manage the the energy transition. And, and I completely get that it's an important part of the mission is um, as impressive as the technology is and as impressive as you scaling it and bringing down the prices that you also can't give society, humanity, companies um, an excuse to produce more carbon dioxide. Um, and, and I think that's always been really clear from where you've come from. Um, I, mean, I think the, the final question, um, having really, really enjoyed learning and understanding more, would just be, what do you think the world looks like and can look like um, if um, if Climeworks succeeds? <laughs> the to to our kids and and grandkids, I I do think that the image of an air capture plant will be as normal as today. It's it's like a, a wind farm or a solar farm is to us. Like in in twenty fifty. It'll be completely normal to see like a wind farm or a solar farm and a, a direct air capture facility co-located to it. We we will be seeing like on our end, as mentioned, uh, like million tons in 2030, gigaton in 2050. A plant will be a size of a million tons. So we need, we will be building a thousand plants until 2050. So the, the image of that will, will be a very normal one to us. And, you know, like today, if uh, I can't believe there was a time when people were smoking in airplanes. Mm. And uh, I think like for our kids, it will be very, for our kids, it will be the same to think about a planet where you don't see those facilities. It'll be completely normal to have that, to clean the atmosphere or to have those recycling facilities. Similarly, as we have water treatment facilities today, or, or waste treatment facilities. We'll have facilities treating the atmosphere that we, we, we can achieve the, the targets. So that's, um, I hope, uh, where, where everything will, will go to and, uh, that it's simply becoming mainstream. That's the only chance we have is that this topic is cracking. And this is why the, our, our wish is, is inspire a billion people, uh, to remove CO2 from the air. This has to become mainstream. It has to be completely normal to, 
think about ways of removing CO2 from the air as part of your activities um, and not a special top, like a specialist topic as it's today. Today, like if, if you ask someone on the street, ask, hey, do you know this can be done? Like 99% of, of the people will tell you, I've, I've not heard about that. I didn't know this works. And uh, this this has to change in, in 2050. And at the end of the day, my hope is uh, to, to end on a, a fun fact. My hope is Climeworks will be a verb by then. And then we, we know we have been successful. <laughs> Climeworks. <laughs> a, a Climework future, exactly. Yeah. Are you optimistic about humanity and climate change because of that power of human ingenuity? Because of um, whether it's ingenuity um, at Climeworks and other companies on the renewable side? Um, does that give you sufficient optimism, even though there's obviously a very, very large mountain for us all to climb there? Yes, of course, else I wouldn't be doing that. Like I've been doing that for uh, 16 years, never bored. Uh, it's I've, I've, I've my absolute dream job, couldn't imagine to be anywhere else. And the only reason uh, you can do that is if you believe in what you do and if you're optimistic. If I would be pessimistic, like no way, you would burn out. So I'm definitely optimistic. I think as humans are mostly late to the game, uh, and but they they mostly make it. So I, I I do think that's that's the case also here. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty important mission and goal. So Christoph, thank you so much for um, coming on and sharing what Climeworks are doing and how you're both scaling a trillion dollar industry and helping address the climate crisis. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you for the invite. That was so interesting, Lawrence. And and from my side, I think the biggest takeaway from that conversation was this perception that's going to be as common to see a direct air capture facility as it is to see a wind farm or or a solar farm and just the ambition that they have, you know, going from where we are today, where 99% of people haven't heard of this technology to, to getting to that point is, is just is just incredible. But maybe Lauren's coming on to the investment case. You know, we ask, you know, both you and Tom the same questions about the company at, at the end of, of the podcast. And the first question that we always put to you is, well, how did you come across this company? You know, given what Christoph said, I'm guessing it wasn't um, a banner, a Coldplay concert. So how did how did this company come to be in the portfolio? Yeah. Our, our bailey Gifford colleague, Lee, was uh, looking at carbon capture. Um, and it was actually starting by looking at a different company, but looking at the industry as a whole, recognizing that this is an industry that could be an awful lot larger over the next decade or two. Um, and as he was researching that company in the industry, Climax was a name that kept coming up. Um, and so he reached out to the company to learn about them. And this was back in 2019. And so that started the relationship with Climeworks and then eventually led, as me and Tom um, sort of appreciated the research he was doing in the area and, and the insight that built up around the broader industry um, to be able to invest uh, where we first invested in 2022. And obviously, what's so integral to our investment um, process is this concept of backing founders and entrepreneurs and you know we've we've heard from Christoph today, who's who's just enlightened us with this industry. But in your opinion, what does Christoph bring to the table? What is it about him that gives him that special, you know, unique edge that we're looking for? I think a really important thing is to this uh, phrase of backing missionaries, not mercenaries. <laughs> um, yeah. Jensen Huang recently came out for NVIDIA and said that if he went back in time, he wouldn't found NVIDIA because it had been such a hard and difficult journey. Yeah. And so Climeworks, even if it's successful, is going to be a really difficult journey building up and scaling that entirely new industry. It's going to be hard work. And so I think you have to have someone that is motivated by a bigger goal than just making money or even just building a business, someone that wants to change and have an impact on the world. And I think with Christoph, 
that's very much in the case. This is a passion project. It is driven by a desire that he believes this is something that needs to happen for humanity. And I think that that missionary drive is something that we see in some of the very best cases of companies that have really achieved outlier outcomes. Um, I think the second thing is that it's a duo. It's Christoph and it's uh, Jan. He's a co-founder. And they've been together for 13 years, very strong relationship. Again, that long-term commitment coming through there. And Christoph handles a little bit more of the external stuff, governments, regulators, customers. Jan is more internally focused. And I think when you can identify either co-founders or a management team where there are complementary skill sets, that becomes mm -hmm. very powerful. Because often if you're looking for everything within a single individual or a single founder, that can be quite tricky to have. So to have a duo here, I think, is quite helpful. And Lauren, is just pivoting slightly towards the kind of the competitive environment. I mean, I really liked Christoph's comparison to the oil and gas industry, both in terms of the size that direct your carbon capture could be and also the makeup of it. You know, we talked about the fact that today you have these 10 or 20 really big companies in the oil and gas space. And he expects that could be a similar uh, makeup for, for this industry in, in decades to come. So maybe the question to you is, you know, what do you think Climeworks has or what's its competitive edge that would enable it to be one of those big superpowers, if you like, in, in this space? Yeah. So I think there are a number of companies in our portfolio where we see competitive dynamics that mean that this is going to be a winner-takes-all or a winner-takes-most market. I think this one's a bit different. I don't mm -hmm. think Climeworks will be the only long-term player. I think Climeworks themselves have been open about that. And in many ways, they want other people to be involved in this mission. Um, and so... The analogies that he brought out are good ones in terms of the industry structure, um, wind turbines, oil and gas. Um, this isn't going to be a winner-takes-all market. Mm. But Climeworks do have a really good shot at being a really material player. Why? Because they've been at this um, longer and in the real world before anybody else. The ability to go out and have multiple plants operating, learn from them, iterate and improve and get the data back to improve, that really is the edge, the head start and, and taking that um, forward. I think if there's another one, it's the fact that because you've got that head start, you've been able to go around and build um, some of the investors that are going to be on that journey to support you for the long term as well, because funding here is going to be crucial. This is not a capital-like industry. Yeah, and maybe just elaborating on that point, Lawrence, because like, you know, we obviously have to talk about the threats and the risks in any of our investment cases. But with something like Climeworks, the challenge is, is, is almost twofold, isn't it? It's almost like, you know, the speed at which we need to find these new technologies and innovations that can help with the climate crisis and and um, reform carbon-intensive sectors at scale. But then, as you allude to, there's also this other challenge, which is finding patient capital and, and investors who can back these companies over the long term. So how do you assess the, the challenges both on, on that, both of those fronts there, both in the technology and, and in the funding side of things? So I think the real challenge is the technology works. Mm -hmm. These are up and running um, in real life in Iceland, of course. Uh, the challenge is how do you get the cost point down to a level um, where you're going to see real demand for the service? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a journey that they're going to go on. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be iterative. It's one of the big biggest elements of the investment case is getting them down that cost curve over yeah. time and making sure it doesn't, um, you know, the cost curve doesn't sort of become more shallow over time. The funding one, I think, is also important. Um, the two are interrelated. The more progress and quicker you can make it on the cost curve, the easier the funding will come because you have stronger proof points to investors. Um, but I think there's a bigger one that really we've come across, which is that if you look at a lot of the VC funding ecosystem, it's been built on layers and layers of success, particularly mm -hmm. around Silicon Valley. It's been about giving people um, checks to go and start the next big thing, the next big app, 
Yeah. Um, and those are quite iterative. So if you think of doing a ride-hailing app, for example, you go out, you get a team, you design an app, um, you get a few drivers around San Francisco to show that it works, people give you more money, you scale it up to other cities, and you get a lot of proof points and incrementalism along the way that's really helpful for that yeah. journey. Whereas as you move into some of these more physical solutions, which I think the world increasingly needs, yeah. you need the ability to go, you know what, we need quite a lot of capital at the beginning, and it's going to be some time before you get the proof points that it's working. And so I think that shifts the onus even more onto um, people that can provide uh, large amounts of capital and that can do so really patiently. And I think the number of organizations and investors that can do that are smaller. And I think Scottish Mortgage has a role in being able to do that. And Lawrence, I think what's interesting as well is that you don't have to be a big corporation like a Microsoft or a Stripe to be involved in Climeworks' journey. You know, me or you can get involved in it as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, I, I think that gives a connection um, to Climeworks, to the story, to the effort. Um, and what it's allowing individuals to do is if you go, well, yeah, I'm feeling guilty about my carbon footprint. I want to find ways to reduce it. I've just gone on a long-haul flight. How do I offset it in the best possible way and, and remove the impact I've just done? There is that option available for individuals, um, and that's available on their website. Yeah, absolutely, Lawrence. And maybe just a final question for you is, how how do you describe the scale of the opportunity? How, how excited are you about a company like Climeworks? Yeah, I, th I think it's really important to start with the caveat that it is early. Yeah. Um, but... The opportunity, both from an economic perspective, and going back to where we started, and from a societal perspective here is very, very large. Um, the hope is that this becomes one of humanity's um, big tools in its overall toolkit of how to deal with climate change. Um, how do we deal with the carbon that's already in the atmosphere? How do we deal with certain parts of our civilization where abatement on its own is really hard? You can't just reduce the carbon emissions to zero. And Climeworks is a solution for that. You know, Christoph has run through the numbers of, you know, could this be as an industry, a trillion dollar industry? You know, and when you're starting at this early stage, that means that the opportunity potentially here is enormous. And so the hope is that this is a company that, if it really succeeds, could be delivering multi-billion dollar revenue streams. And that becomes really very interesting. And the side point, of course, is this could be um, a material um, help in dealing with the climate crisis, which affects and will affect increasingly all of us. Perfect. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. So thank you very much, Lawrence, for your time today. Thank you. So a massive thank you to Christoph Gabold of Climeworks and to Deputy Manager of Scottish Mortgage, Lawrence Burns. To finish season two, we welcome David Jones, the CEO and founder of the Brandtech Group, a marketing technology company that helps brands make their marketing better, faster and cheaper using the latest technology. Unlisted investments such as private companies in which the trust has a significant investment can increase risk. These assets may be more difficult to sell, so changes in their prices may be greater. You can listen to all episodes from season one and two on all major podcast platforms, and you can learn more about us at scottishmortgage.com. You've been listening to Invest in Progress. Thank you for joining us.